Attention Disney enthusiasts, film fans, and those who have grown up with and have been inspired by Disney animation films. Drawn to Greatness, Disney's animation renaissance tells the story of Walt Disney Studios' hit animated films of the 1990s. This incredible book, written by celebrated author and 20-year Walt Disney World veteran Michael Lyons, provides the chronological story of how a group of Disney artists trained by legends who had worked on the studio's classic films believed in the power of storytelling. Each Disney animated film from this era is captured in first-hand detail, including how the blockbuster success of The Lion King was a circle-of-life moment for the studio, how The Nightmare Before Christmas went from a forgotten project to a scary success, how Toy Story took animation to infinity and beyond, and so much more. Get your copy of Drawn to Greatness, Disney's Animation Renaissance today at Amazon.com or through Michael's website, wordsfromlions.com. If you order through his website, Michael will sign and personalize the book to you. Again, that's wordsfromlions.com, L-Y-O-N-S dot com. Ansel Adams once said, you don't take a photograph, you make it. That's exactly what New York-based photographer and artist Darren Chumbly has been doing for 22 years. He's been capturing incredible moments, nature, people, and the world around him, and every single photo of his tells a story. Sometimes it's humor, sometimes it's beauty, but it's always a perfect moment in time that's captured forever. Visit picturedlc.com to learn more and to get to his Redbubble page where you can give these incredible moments as gifts in the forms of t-shirts, dresses, posters, tapestries, acrylic blocks, cards, prints, and more. That's picturedlc.com. To all who come to this happy podcast, welcome. Hi, I'm Scott Jacobs, and this is season two of The Mouse and Me. On the show, I'll chat with my pals who come from all walks of Disney life, including Imagineers, dancers, technicians, directors, musicians, and stuntmen, and Broadway friends who have worked on stage and behind the scenes. We'll talk attractions, shows, food, characters, tips and tricks for planning your trip and navigating the parks, and more. Now, put on your Mickey ears or your princess crown and enjoy season two of The Mouse and Me. Welcome back, everyone. I'm glad you're here. This is the Mouse and Me podcast, and I am your host, Scott Jacobs. My guest today is such a cool dude. He He's an actor, author, and stuntman with over three decades of experience in entertainment. His background encompasses everything from film to live shows and Renaissance festivals to audiobooks. His theme park entertainment background includes almost two decades with Universal and over two decades with Disney. With Disney, he started in attraction operations and left the company when his film and TV career took off, and he never imagined he would return, but he did as a member of the opening stunt team for Lights, Motors, Action. At the stage, he served in a variety of roles, including driver, trainer, and subject matter expert on safety for the Disney Institute. He was a member of the 40th Anniversary Traditions team, including teaching Disney Cruise Line traditions, and it was during that time he was nominated for and became a Legacy recipient, an award designed to recognize in those individuals Walt's spirit to dream, create, and inspire. And this award is given to less than 1% of all cast members worldwide. As a leader for the Walt Disney Company, he served many roles and operations, including Disney Photo Imaging, Characters, Equity, 
Contract Entertainment, Parkwide Manager for Special Events, Hurricane Rideout Crew Entertainment Manager, and Stage Manager for both the Spirit of Aloha Dinner Show and the longest continuously running theatrical production in U.S. history, The Hoop Dee Doo Review. I am so happy to introduce you to my pal, Ron Fox. Hey, Ron. Hey, wow. Um, that sounds like a guy that's done an awful lot of stuff. <laughs> you have done a lot of stuff. And it's such an impressive bio. I love it. I do have regards for you, by the way. So yes. Andrea, Andrea Canny and I, we were talking today, we were texting, and I said, I'm interviewing Ron tonight. She's like, oh, fun. That sounds great. Have a great time with Ron. He's amazing. Please give him my love. If you remember, I've remembered. She sends you her love. I love her to death. She's having, you know, speaking of Disney Cruise Line, she's having the best time of her life right now. She's she's uh, on the wonder. uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's so Spending time at the North Pole. Yep. That is so cool. So let's let's get into this here. Uh, I know you've done a lot of stuff. You've done entertainment. You've been on stage. You've been in front of the camera. You've been behind the scenes. How old were you when you were bit by the performing bug? You know, I I think that's a great question because in hindsight, I look back and go, oh, well, you know, I did that in Temple and, you know, I sang in high school. Um, you know, even everybody who's listening has probably heard of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And I was a performer with a cast back before the term shadow cast had actually come into existence. Um, even even did a re- regional tour of the show as Brad Majors, but even then I didn't I didn't really think about it, and it was a car accident that completely changed my my direction. And um, after after the car accident, I wound up not being able to return back to the financial services industry, and and a, a dear friend of mine, um, her mom. Uh, Lee, she and I were having a talk and, and she said, you know, you love Disney and, you know, I know, I know you've got this creative piece in you and you should do it. So, so the long answer to your short question, Scott, is I, I really, I, I fell into stunts and, and wholesale full-time into acting, uh, much later in life than, than many people. I was, um, I was in my, I was in my twenties when it happened, you know, and for most people, there's, there's, they're typically single digiters when, when they say, this is it. I know I'm destined for the stage. Right. Right. But yeah, it, it, uh, it took, uh, you know, it, it took all of that. I, I like to tell people it was a cosmic tap on the shoulder by God saying what you're doing is not what's your, what you're supposed to be doing. So you mentioned working in stunts, but that's not how you started at Disney. No, I, I, that that's correct. I, I started at Disney back when you still had to audition for show-oriented attraction roles. I had to audition for a role in Inside the Magic. If you remember when Disney MGM first opened, it was a working production facility. And they had Inside the Magic, they had the soundstage tours, you had the backstage shuttle tour. You had to audition for these roles. You, you had to show up, you had to, you had to audition and then they'd decide you can or you can't do this. And 
after auditioning many times before my accident, it was actually the thing that made me go into that sector, that financial services sector. A friend of mine had said, go audition. If you don't get it, get your license. You'll make a lot of money and then you can do whatever you want. But I'd never actually got cast in anything at Disney. I never got hired until afterward. I, I don't know why. I don't know what I did differently, but the casting director said, you're exactly who we want. And, uh, and they hired me and I got to, got to be an attractions host, but there was also an entertainment piece to it. Cause you, you talked about the magic of filmmaking. You picked people out of the audience. You got to, even then I realized how important and critical and crucial it is to build relationships with people. And, and, and that's a thing that anybody who's a lover of Disney or, or any theme park is going to tell you, they don't, they don't go for the rides. They go for the people, they go for the relationships. And, and so, yeah, I was, I was there in that position for close to five years. And as my film and TV career took off, I wound up leaving because I was doing live shows at universal. I was starting to do film and TV work. And then my career presented opportunities to live in other countries. So I wound up, wound up living in the Netherlands for a year and got to travel to other parts of the world, all, all because of my stunt background. Of all the places where you live, do you have a favorite place? Absolutely. The Netherlands. I, I, would, I would, in a heartbeat, um, go back. I, I actually had tried. Um, I begged, uh, begged my wife when, when she was pregnant. I said, let's have Nugget in the Netherlands because if we do she'll be a dual citizen and she'll have access to, you know, their, their public education system. You graduate high school speaking five languages. Oh, college, wow. is, college is free as long as you graduate. Yeah. But it was Scott. I made it a joke. I, I, I jokingly said, I'm looking for mean Dutch people. I never found any. <laughs> Just the, the kindest, sweetest, hardworking um, uh, as a culture, as a people, they're very family centric. It, it, to me, just, there's so much about it. It's beautiful. I love history. There was over, uh, 60 castles and chateaus and ruins of castles within an hour of the town that I lived in, which in and of itself is a, a historical national, uh, landmark. It's called Elburg, um, E-L-B-U-R-G. Uh, if anyone wants to look it up, it is, a walled city that's still complete. You know, the wall is still completely contained. It's got a tower. It's about an hour east of Amsterdam. And nice. yeah, I got to live there. It was amazing. Just and, and now was she born there or was she born no, here in the States? No, no. I mean, <laughs> right, rightfully, rightfully so. You know, I don't, I don't think the in-laws would have appreciated the fact that uh, they're, brand new grandchild was going to be born 6,200 miles away. So, sure. So she, she was not, but she was, um, she was born. I, I jokingly called it the, uh, the, the, what was it? South Lake Lodge at the, the hospitals called South Lake hospital. They, this is what they did nine o'clock at night. The first night, you know, in those really high end restaurants, when they push in the big wooden wheeled carts with the plexi, fronts yes desserts and coffees scott they pushed one of those into the room and they said hey 
if maybe at two o'clock you're hungry, you want a Danish, maybe you want something that's not on the menu, just call this number. They handed me a card. They handed me a card, said, call this number. We will run something up for you. I haven't had that kind of service in some four-star hotels. Wow. Yeah, that was pretty cool. Any plans to go back? <laughs> oh, there's always talk. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. There's always talk. Like, Thank you for I, saying that. Thank you. <laughs> see, I, well, it's out there now, so you never know. Yeah, good point. So, so that first job that you had at Disney, you said it was attractions. What, what was the attraction? Inside the magic. So where if you're, if you're walking now up towards the entrance to Toy Story Mania, if you keep walking past that main entrance, that next building, that soundstage, which was now converted to be the Toy Story Mania attraction, that's where the beginning of Inside the Magic was. And then the whole thing would just loop back, take you across more active sound stages. And then when you were done, you would you would take the backstage shuttle tour for the tram part of the tour. And and tell me your specific role. Like, like what did what did you do when you got on stage? So my my job uh, when we were in the sound stages was you'd, you'd greet guests, you would talk to them about the first room they walked into where there were props from dozens upon dozens of Disney films. And, and you would talk about how the magic was created. You would have there were videos up on the, the ceilings that were angled down so people could watch. And then look down and see the props and understand how things like stop motion photography worked. We would talk about green screen work and then we would pick a couple of kids for the next scene in the next room in the soundstage, which would be the scene from Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. We had this gigantic mock-up of a bumblebee and the kids would get on very safely. And there was a, there was a six-point gimbal camera that would, when we said action to them, this camera would move in and out and it would tilt, simulating the motion of the bee, right? And there's a big green screen behind them. And then when we do the whole thing playback, we would we would put that image, that motion picture image on the green screen behind them and we'd have the kids yelling. The funny thing always was was, you know, you'd you'd tell the kids, all right, I want you to scream like your life depended on it. You're terrified. You, you're going to, you're going to fall off this bee. It's, it's, it's the most terrifying ride you've ever had in your life. Oh my gosh. Oh, watch out there. And they're laughing and they're giggling <laughs> and they're, and honestly, man, that's, that's, you know, quick, quick sidebar. Um, if you ever watch the actor's studio, Brad Pitt was on there one day and, and he was asked, what, what, what is your most favorite sound in the world? And he said, the laughter of my kids. Mm. And I, and I, I think, I think there's a point where before and after your parent, that means two different things. Right. Right. Yep. So, you know, with the kids just laughing and having a great time, it's like, you guys are supposed to be looking scared, but whatever they were having a good time. That's all that mattered. And then, um, and then from there we would take them up to the sound stages and whatever was happening on the sound stages, uh, at at various points, there were game shows being shot on the sound stages. From the Earth to the Moon, the 
the award-winning miniseries about uh, about the the race to the moon were shot on the sound stages. Uh, Mortal Kombat TV series was shot there. A bunch of other shows as well. Now, why did they transition away from the sound stages? Like I, I had heard that you know all of the events that were happening in the parks, like the parades and there were you know loud fireworks that that was causing some sound issues. Is that the main reason or, or were there multiple reasons? I can't speak as an official uh, uh, Disney historian to that. M- my guess based on the information that I had learned was that the sound stages were valuable real estate for park expansion and that the, the revenue that was supposed to be coming in just wasn't happening. My understanding because I was uh, I was just an hourly cast member when the transition started, but it was that it it was hard to keep them constantly populated. There there might have been price sensitivity issues, especially with Universal being just down the street. And I mean, they really Universal had a lot going on uh, for it. They've got the sound stages, they got the bungalows, they've got a dedicated crew that supports all of that. Uh, you've got Chapman Leonard also in town. And, and so with all of that, I think, I think Disney just decided to get out of the, the production space and give that, give that footprint over to whatever park expansion was going to look like. And I'm, I'm pretty sure, you know, I, I hope I'm not jumping the shark here. Um, you know, lights, motors, action, the same thing there, there was, there was um, experimentation to see if they could create a Toy Story themed show with like Lightning McQueen and Mater and all these all these characters and and they were going to be electric vehicles, but they just they couldn't get the technology to perform to the standards they wanted, and so that footprint gave way to Galaxy's Edge. Gotcha. It's always about the real estate. So. You mentioned Lights, Motors, Action, and and that's what brought you back to Disney. Tell me yes. about your involvement with that. The audition process for Lights, Motors, Action was uh, was a pretty complex one, um, and I I'd, I'd found out about it because I'd I'd had the great opportunity to start working with a uh, a stunt team in the Central Florida area that had. Uh, been built. It was a, a loose confederation of, of stunt performers, and they'd all been brought together by a, a gentleman named Grady Bishop. And he worked with the Imagineers and designers and the people who had created the original show, because if you, you probably know, the show found its origins under Remy Julian and his son in Paris as Motors Action. That's right. And, yes. and they, they recognized for this, uh, this year of a million dreams that this would be a great thing to, to, uh, to create. And they built, it was a bigger set. The lights motors action set was a bigger footprint. The buildings were bigger. The stands held 2000 more people. And the audition process was, uh, literally it was, it was multi-tiered. We came in and they'd put us in a vehicle. We'd have a radio. We had to 
we had to demonstrate certain skill sets like um, like we had to drift. We had to spin on a point inside four cones without hitting them. We had to do high speed reverses. We had to be able to do a high speed reverse between a lane, uh, two rows of cones on either side and come to a stop as quickly as possible without hitting the cone at the end of that lane. They um, they would wet down the, the pad, the skid part of the pad to, to see what kind of control we had when they would, for example, we'd, we'd be speeding down towards three lanes and you'd have the radio and at the last possible minute they would say left and you'd have to cut the wheel and get over there and take out as few cones as possible. And they were constantly scoring you. And if they, if they liked what they saw, they brought you back and you did it again and you did it again. And I, I, I had to go through subsequent auditions several times before I got to be one of the 26 people picked to open the show. And now driving on I-4 was good training ground for you then. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I try, I try not to be that person. I I always say that, you know, the the folks who think they're, they're stunt drivers offend those of us who are. To me, I-4, I don't think is as bad as the surface streets where, you know, people are doing 75, 80 miles an hour. The car accident I was talking about, uh, you know, a guy hit me head on and police said they estimated he was doing between 76 and 80 miles an hour in his Ford F-150 pickup truck. And he was driving in a 35 mile per hour zone. So you, yeah, you you look at that, um, you expect people to speed and- I, I think that's okay, but then a lot of it isn't okay, especially when people when people are eating or putting on makeup or they're they're reading a book or reading a magazine and they're driving. I don't I don't get any of that, but I mean that's the Buddhist in me is going to say that's your journey, and if you're supposed to be reading and eating while you're driving your car, who am I to judge? Seriously though, where did you get all of that training? You, you mentioned something earlier where you had some stunt training is is that where where you you got this training or or was there also um training like in the moment like during rehearsals for for the show so a great a great thing happened first of all to the first question um grady bishop would conduct these these three and four day weekend classes and there are there are other folks out there that are doing it and doing an incredible job um Bobby Orr uh, is a great example. They're located in Sebring, but actually next year they're relocating their facility to Atlanta. But they, you know, they, they teach law enforcement. And, and, and that's the thing that I tell everyone. If you, if you take one of these classes, you, first of all, become a much better driver because of spatial awareness. You become a better driver because you know how to set up your rear view mirrors it's a thing that people don't quite understand. Um, there's so there's so many things, and then landing on that stage, uh, one of the gentlemen who was really a principal trainer and and a key individual in getting us all to that that community aha moment. Uh, his name was uh, Ram Suni. He's uh, he's the kind of guy you'd love to hate because he's six foot one <laughs> with salt and pepper. Uh, hair. It's a big, thick frock, almost like a mane. The guy, the guy's got to be in his late forties, early fifties. 
He's constantly smoking clove cigarettes and, and any woman within line of sight is just swooning over him. And honestly, some of us guys were too, but he, <laughs> he was a trainer from the original show in Paris and he shared a really interesting insight. He said, the car has to be an extension of who you are. The car has to be an extension of your hands and your feet. Right now, you're just trying to make it do things. When you start thinking about the things you want it to do, that's that's when the magic happens. And, you know, some of us are listening and thinking, you know, this is this is not too far from let's get out and hug a tree sort of stuff. But he was right. He was right. And that that aha moment, like one of the things that we had to learn and we went through a boot camp that when we were hired for training, it was a five day a week training schedule where they blocked out one for one the outline of the footprint of the stage in the wonders lot at Epcot. Mm-hmm. And that's how we learned our choreography. But one of the one of the trainers and uh, stage managers, a great a great guy, a heck of a stuntman in his own right, uh, named Phil Ortiz, uh, he ran that thing like a darn boot camp. I'm not kidding, man. We we'd have to run. Uh, we were all in great shape, but it, part of that was the training for the two wheeling. I didn't know how to two wheel and most others didn't either. We were, we were given a week. We were told if you don't get this down in a week, you're off the team. Mm. And, and that, you know, you know, we were talking about um, off the air before we started tonight's uh, show um, about, you know, you want to get it right. Cause good enough isn't good enough. And for me, I just kept at it and kept at it and kept at it. And uh, I wanted to make sure I was going to be one of the best two wheelers on that stage. And, and that proof presented itself years later when I came back to LMA for um, in leadership, they call it a reset. When, when you come off of a TA or a leadership assignment, they send you back to your original home where they reset the clock and then they can move you somewhere else. And at the stage, they had set aside a week for me because they figured I'm going to need all this time. They brought me to the production lot, put me in a car, went up on the ramp. First time up on the ramp down. Second time up on the ramp, drove the car, two wheels, all the way down to the end of the production lot. Made a U-turn, still on two wheels. Wow. Drove it all the way back to where the guys were standing with their radios and then I just dropped the car and, uh, and, and I knew I could tell. And, um, in fact, one of the guys recorded that and I, I still have that footage. Um, I think it's on YouTube somewhere, but I had to be that good. And I was able to do that, Scott, after not being in the seat of one of those vehicles for 18 months. Wow. I, I'm going to need to find that video. Yeah. It's, it's pretty easy to find. All right. Well, you'll have to you'll have to clue me in on what buzzwords to to put in. I, no, actually, um, I, actually, I think I may. I think it's an active link. There's a direct link from my website. If you if you go to the film and TV links, I think you'll find it. Okay, and I'm gonna post the uh, the web address in the show notes. Oh yeah, perfect. Cool. So, how long was the training now? Six months. Yes. Okay. Yep. And we, you said Monday we, to Friday. Monday through Friday. That's right. Monday through Friday, eight, eight to five, eight to six. And 
we uh, we got a chance to see when we saw the stage. It was still a hard hat area, so we, we went couldn't couldn't possibly imagine what the finished product was going to look like. But we started um, we we started training in October in March. We started doing soft open performances they were they were all they were all basically tech rehearsals and and audiences especially if you're a disney fan you know and appreciate the fact that hey i'm i'm getting to see this before anybody else does and the trade-off is it's probably going to happen in fits and starts but that's okay but that's how we got to figure things out such as like for example um the the aggregate component of the parking lot asphalt at the wonders lot is completely different from the asphalt decking at the stage. So we all had to, we all had to adjust our driving. We had to adjust our, our, our spatial awareness, our, our sense of what we should be doing speed wise. When should we be cutting the wheels? When should we be hitting the e-brakes and, and doing that on the stage gave us that opportunity. We got to, Got what? What is it? Uh, um, um, rehearse what you're going to show, right? Mm-hmm. Because you don't you don't want to be practicing in the show. The show right. is, shows when you when you give everybody the very best you can. Well, especially that show. Uh, you know, there's so much room for error, and and, yep. and you you cannot mess up because I mean you could, you know, take take a life. That's true. Actually, I. Um, I had the chance. I'm always looking for things to do, always looking for things to create value. And I wound up building a tour for Disney University called From Motors to Action, Launching an Explosive Show. And it talked about how the show arrived from Paris, what it took to launch the show. It showed the people who got to sign up for the tour a lot of uh, a lot of proprietary information and footage that wasn't just openly shared anywhere. They got to sit and watch the morning warm up, and then they would get from VIP seating, and then they'd get to watch the show. And in doing my research, one of the things that I discovered was that stunt show has still has the best safety record of any stunt show or any show doing stunts anywhere in the world. Nice. Yeah. Now, what did the warm up period look like? The warm-up was essentially a show without an audience, and it had it had two of the three components. We we would start by basically doing what's called hot laps. There would be some cones set up, and we would drift in and out of the cones. We'd go through the gates, the archways and entrances, if you remember the set. Each mm-hmm. one of those was called a gate, and they were numbered one to eight. So we would set all this up so we could drift in and out of there, and then... We would test our limiters. Once that was done, we would go to top for ballet, and then we would uh, we'd do surf and turf. And then, um, and then when we were done, we would do a, a two wheel exercise. They put uh, ramps out like we'd set them up on the stage, and we did it for two reasons. Want to make sure everybody everybody who was driving that day had a chance to two wheel, but also it gave us a chance to check the ramps before show to make sure there weren't any issues. Um, they weren't buckling. There weren't any issues with hinges, and and we would just uh, pop the cars up on two wheels, and and then we'd head back. We'd prep the vehicles, and usually, by the time the vehicles were 
set. They were loading pyro. We were typically about 20 minutes to show. Okay. Now, now you mentioned uh, ballet and, and touch and go. What the heck does that mean? When I did the tour, I would describe Lights, Motors, Action to anybody who had never seen the show as ballroom dancing at 70 miles an hour. <laughs> it's really the best way to describe it. Our our names for the shows, like the the ballet was the first scene. And, and you've seen the show, right? I have. Okay. So the ballet was the first scene in the show. And, it, and it's so called because there's, there's a lot of pirouettes and weaving and a lot of close quarters driving where there's a lot of drifting and, and moving and sliding. It's, you're really essentially performing. You're not quite performing as an individual because you've got partners out there, everybody, and everybody drives a little differently. Um, it's another reason why we do the warm ups every single day at the top of the day. We want to make sure the vehicles are ready to perform for the day, but because everybody drives a little differently, you want to make sure you have the feel for how your partners are going to be driving. So, you know, instead of wearing shoes, we're wearing tires. And, you know, instead of wearing tuxedos and flowing ball gowns, we're wearing uh, nine layer driving suits and strapping us ourselves into very hot cars. Mm. Um, yeah. I would I, imagine there was no air conditioning in those vehicles. No, no. No, I would, it would, it would wick away too much horsepower. So no, I'll, I'll add uh, with, with touch and go with surf and turf. It was the same thing. Uh, touch and go was another chase sequence where the hero, um, the finale, the climax of that scene is him going up the ramp truck and then hitting the touch truck and landing the bag, uh, landing the vehicle into an airbag specifically designed to catch a car. Oh, wow. And then, and then surf and turf was a combination of things happening on the stage while there was also the jet ski, the, the, the surf piece happening in the canal. Right. Now, now I, I know that there was jet ski cars and there were motorcycles, right? Correct. Were you only assigned to the cars or did you also I, do? I, some, some of us did motorcycles. I, I stuck with cars. Okay. So, and, and we all did several tracks. I'm an outsider looking in, having never driven like that. But just it, to me, it seems like it would be a complete adjustment in 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 your mind, in in your body. Where okay, now I'm doing I'm doing one track for this show, and now I'm doing a completely different track for the next show. In between shows, did you all rehearse? in the, the new tracks? Like, like did, did you have like, for, for all intents and purposes, a, a dress rehearsal to make sure that everyone was doing what they were supposed to do when they were supposed to do it? Because now you're driving a different vehicle, you're doing a different track. Not often, believe it or not. You know, the, the V1, V for villain, uh, the V1 through V4, typically those would be the same tracks for all, all two, three or four shows. Typically, sometimes not, but typically it would. Um, there might be some changes elsewhere. Now, for me, the thing that I did, and I did it every single day when I got in the car, belted myself in. When we got our places called for top of show, that meant we still had between three and five minutes before the show started. And when I went to my places for top of show, um, you know, I had I had several years of ballet and jazz, and the thing that I would always do when I'd sit in the cockpit waiting for the start of the show was depending on the track I was driving, I'd use my hands to, to work through the blocking 
they're like, okay, come out here and there's V4. Okay, go around. Okay. I mean, I'm literally doing the whole show with my hands in my mind, did it every single time. Because to your point, it, it's very possible. You know, the thing that most people don't think about is with a lot of live shows, your people are limited to doing one or two roles. Usually, you know, this one role and then you're a backup for another role, maybe two. And you understand the importance of swings, especially with with touring Broadway productions, especially musicals. I mean, swings are critically important, but also in our stage, having swings were really, really important in case something happened, whether it was someone called out or um, a very unlikely event, uh, an injury happened, someone had to leave because maybe there'd be a family emergency. We would be able to move things around so that we could populate the vacant track, the vacant driver position with someone else. You said that you did the show with your hands, like, you know, kind of visualizing. I I know Mm -hmm. that I watched a documentary on the Blue Angels. And before they get in the planes, they sit around a table, they do the same thing. Yeah. And it's, it's a muscle memory thing. And, you know, whatever you're doing, if you keep at it, keep at it, keep at it, you can't help but get better. When I was, when I was, doing the wild west stunt show at universal um i was working on my high fall and and the original ma hopper there's a lovely gal named gainer johnson former circus performer and she saw me struggling and she goes just get out of your head you do it a hundred times and you'll get it right and i Mm. thought a hundred times she was right freaking up the scaffold fall up the scaffold fall up the scaffold just bam 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 and and the reason why you want to be able to do that is because invariably it's like riding a motorcycle. It's not if, but when you lay it down, invariably something's going to happen. Your foot might slip. Something, something's going to happen that your muscle memory has to kick in and your spatial awareness saves you. Right. Now, when Andrea and I were talking, she told a story about how one of the motorcycles hit the ramp a certain way. And when they landed, I think it was like the front tire, it hit wrong or something. And, and the, the stunt person went up over the handlebars and they wound up breaking their collarbone. And luckily that was the extent of the injuries, you know, uh, thank goodness it wasn't worse. Did you see anything uh, I, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you have, and, and I, I hope the answer yeah, is no, I, but I'm sure you saw something. Yeah, the 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 morning that that uh, Andrea referred to, um, the the beauty of the show is how everything was over engineered, and as much as you do that, sometimes you're going to miss things, and the ramps were misconfigured. The, they should have been configured so that the motorcycles would jump from stage right to stage left. Instead, they were configured for stage left to stage right jumps, which meant the stage left ramp was higher than the stage left ramp, which uh, stage right ramp, which meant that no matter how much speed the motorcycle had, they were never going to clear the other ramp. Oh, that's, I gotcha. That, and that's, that's what happened. But, you know, he, he recovered perfectly from that, uh, what it resulted in for us was the opportunity to, to as a you know as a safety conscious stage, walk the stage and look at other options that might present themselves that we wouldn't want to happen. You know, can this happen? Can this happen? What happens if this is the case? How do we prevent that from taking place? So, it um, it didn't cause a reactive safety mindset, which was good. Right? You know, people the right people said 
you know, accidents are going to happen. And you, you know, early, early in my career, very early in my career, um, I was bragging about being a stuntman at a, a mixer at a party. And this old timer, he said, you're a stuntman. And I said, yes, sir. And he goes, you ain't a stuntman till you broke something. And, uh, about a month and a half later, I broke something which made me official. So, you know, you you know, in this industry, you're the the injury is waiting for you. Doesn't right. doesn't matter how careful you are, it's it's just going to happen. That stage is gargantuan. I mean, the stands seat five thousand people. Yes. How big was it backstage? Was it the same amount of space behind the sets? Was it a lot smaller? Was you know were there tight corners where you had to navigate the vehicles around when they weren't on the stage during uh, during a, a performance? Yes, it was a it was a very for example the top of show with ballet that that first scene when you would see the cars disappear through gate eight the far stage left gate they are literally traveling abreast side by side think think two vehicles that size traveling side by side through a space that's not much wider than a single lane road that you're traveling on. Oh, wow. And at the same time, you're drifting because you can't drive into that center gate, which is gate five. You have to drift into it. If you try to drive into it, you're going to clip the corners of the walls. So literally the vehicles are coming into the gate and they're drifting and then going forward. Side by side, there were there were plenty of times where after that scene, we'd have to get out and adjust our mirrors because we'd inadvertently fold each other's mirrors and we'd be that. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And how often did they do maintenance on each vehicle? I'm sure it was after every show. So tires in the summer got replaced after every show. We would we would typically go through a set of tires a show. Wow. The, the other the other maintenance they. The maintenance team in our garage, our atelier, which is the French word for garage, they were they were the most amazing guys. They all of them to a person understood everything about uh, big engine and small engine mechanics, and they were constantly working on our vehicles to keep them highly tuned and and ready to perform at their ultimate level. And just to give you an idea of how incredible these guys were, we had, we had three hero cars. Uh, one, one was up on a lift. The other one, I can't remember what was going on with it, but it was not available. And the one vehicle we had, we lost the transmission at the top of show. They pulled the vehicle back, swapped out the transmission in 17 minutes. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. And it makes me wonder why it takes somebody an hour to change my oil. <laughs> do you have a favorite moment from that show? I do. Um, all of those moments, though, involved creating magic. And one that stands out in particular, uh, you know, Herbie. Herbie was a part of that show. Herbie mm-hmm. would, would come out. And between shows... Sometimes I'd walk out into the park, especially after the second show, because there was a big lunch break. And there was one day where it was a real taxing day. And I was like, I, I need to get out of here. I, I need to refill my pixie dust bucket. And, and I would do that by going to visit One Man's Dream, mm. which, 
you get to listen to the man himself. You listen to Walt, you see the things that he did. You're like, okay, everything's going to be fine in the world. And I'm walking out and I walk by a family and they're looking at the signs and I just can't help myself. And I kind of steer towards them. And I said, Hey, can I help you guys? And they said, well, we wanted to see the show because we know Herbie's in the show. And it's like, oh, you're in luck because there's one more show. And I'm thinking, ah, oh, look, I did my good deed. I can get the heck out of here. And the woman goes, but we, we have to leave. Uh, we have a flight to catch. So we're, we're leaving here in about, I don't think it was about 30, 35 minutes. So I sat there and went, okay, I'm running through all of these things that I can say. And, and what came out of my mouth was, stay here just a minute. And I go back in the back and I talk to my stage manager. And here's a really great lesson on building relationships. I always kept them in the loop with everything, with the tour I was building, with the stuff I was doing for Disney Institute. I got to create these amazing race style days when our stage was closed to, to just focus on heritage and legacy knowledge building for the cast. And when I went back there and said, hey, there's a family out there and apparently the little boy loves Herbie. Um can I bring them back? And they like, yeah, sure. So unbeknownst to me, one of my dearest friends, PK, he loves Herbie. I disappear. He goes to do his magic. And I walk out, I'm talking to the family, and, and I'm looking at the young man who's now hiding behind his dad's legs. So this is all I see, his fingers and like, <laughs> part of the face. And I said, what, what's, what's your name? And, and mom goes, it's Christopher. And I went, Christopher, what are the chances? I, I went back there and I, I told Herbie, hey, you're never going to believe this, but there's there's a little kid out there. And he was like, Christopher? And I went, yes. And as I'm telling this story, <laughs> making it up out of the top of my head, I'm watching the kid just slowly, slowly come out a little further from behind his dad's leg. And he's just, he's starting to light up. And I said, so, so anyway, Herbie said, I need to bring you back there so he can say hi. Nice. So, we walk around and I, I walk him around the long way. And as we come around the back wall, walking by the terrace a, which is the left stage terrace, there's Herbie in the entrance to gate eight. And as soon as we are all visible, Herbie starts rocking back and forth and honking and the yuga horns going. And it's this joyful cacophony just of craziness. And before any one of us can react and say a single word, Christopher breaks into a run and he dashes for Herbie. And when he gets there, he hugs Herbie's wheel well. Oh, I know. I know that happened like, I don't know, a decade and a half ago. And I, every time still guess I get goosebumps when I share that story. That's so and, cool. And uh, yeah, we took some photos. I walked him back out sent them on their way. I wound up not needing to go to see one man stream that day. Cause I had magically refilled my pixie dust bucket. I changed uh, and replaced my pixie rust for pixie dust. And when I got back into the <laughs> green room, there was PK who I knew he heard the story. He went and got, he went and got Herbie and covered him and brought him out and had him staged and, and, and waiting. So those things to me, you know, I love doing the shows, but the relationships, the relationships, that's, that's what it was all about. And, and the other thing is the fact that we're all, we all still stay in touch and every, we try to do it probably every two years, maybe two and a half years. There's about a group of uh, maybe dozen and a half, two dozen of us who 
get on our motorcycles and, and ride for a day or two. Nice. Yeah. Uh, that's awesome what you did for Christopher. He, it, you know, you're never going to forget that. He's nope. never going to forget that. Nope. That's fantastic. He wrote, um, he wrote a letter. He wrote a letter, which I got through uh, by way of uh, guest relations a few weeks later. He had, in the letter said, Lights, Motors, Action was my most favorite show. Thank you. He never saw the show. He got maybe five minutes with Herbie, but again, goes to that point of perception. It goes to the fact that this one little thing you do and the radiating action and impact it has on others. Fantastic. You mentioned traditions. How, how did you become part of that team? Like, is, is that a role where cast members apply or are they invited to join the team? Uh, I think it's a little of both. You audition. It's one of the hardest auditions I've ever done in my entire life. I had no idea. There are people who have auditioned for traditions a dozen plus times. Hmm. And for me, my, uh, my, my thing, they hand you a little sheet of paper, they just randomly hand you a sheet of paper. And, and I got to say, first of all, the thing that led up to it um, was something I felt very strongly about because uh, I was an equity cast member and equity cast members were not allowed to do things like that. And I, I had several meetings with my equity representatives and I said, I want to do this. This, this is a, a wonderful way for me to give back to the company and give to new cast members. I love what I do. Um, what, what do we have to do to make this happen? And they, they created, they created a little sidebar letter and, and the new role, um, you work a clinician, you got to go in, you got to do this. And so I was literally the last few days before they were going to cut off audition submissions. And they gave me my little sheet. I had to talk three minutes about what do I do? to create pixie dust, which was perfect. Mm -hmm. So, and what they wanted to know is, can you time yourself? Are you capable of telling a story? Are you aware of whether or not your listeners are engaged? I mean, that that's all they're doing. They want to see, can you tell a story? Are you good at it? Are you listening? Are you paying attention? And they would, it was, it was a table of auditors in the back and they gave you three minutes and at 30 seconds to the end of that three minutes, they flashed, a green sign to let you know, hey, it's coming. And then at 15 seconds, yellow. And then when no time left, a red one. And I, I timed my, I timed my three minutes over and over again. And then the thing that I did was I um, uh, made a bunch of little panels. I used heat shrink, right? The plastic heat shrink, like you would. Mm -hmm. I don't know what it's called, but I hopefully people listening know what I'm talking about. Um, it's two layers that when you apply heat to it, it just shrinks up. It stays clear. And I put inside it, I wrote, um, in, uh, in case of loss of pixie dust, break glass. <laughs> and here we go. It was something, it's something I actually still have one. And so I, I know people can't oh, see it, but that is yep. so cool. Yep. And I, and I, uh, I wrote, yeah, in case of emergency break glass, I handed them out to everybody in the class, including the auditors. And I wasn't trying to buy anybody. I just thought this this delivers the message. But um, I made it from there to this to the second audition. From the second at the second audition, I connected with this wonderful person named Caroline, who she and I just kept feeding each other. We'd get these questions, and they were all yes and questions. If you're familiar with improv, 
and they were talking about you know, Walt's vision and and you, what do you do when things don't go quite the way you want them to? And and then after the second audition, there was a third. Anyway, I mean that's how it went, and it kept they kept reducing and reducing because I I think the year that we auditioned, there's something like 600 people auditioned for 50 spots. Wow. Yeah. And you you were one of them. Yes, the year chose me. That it is was so pretty, cool. It was pretty amazing. Another another group of people. There's probably a, a solid dozen of us who stay in touch. Just it's it's the most ridiculously gushing public display of affection anytime any two or few of us get together. So much love. You also did traditions for Disney Cruise Line. I did. I did. Um we we had the opportunity besides doing what was called general enrollment, you did international college program, college program. And then there were some other ones that uh, I think they just, again, the traditions leadership team was really, really good at uh, doing the things that they did. One of which was that person is going to do really well with this. And, and that's how I kind of got voluntold into doing Disney cruise line traditions Mm -hmm. as well which was, was, was just amazing. You know, um, the, the Disney cruise line is the Disney show at sea. It's an incredible experience. I've, I've been on four of the five ships. It's, it's amazing. It's magical. I mean, we could honestly probably just do an entire show on that alone. (laughs) We can do a part two. Yeah. Yes. Well, so I have my very first Disney cruise coming up. Uh, my wife actually surprised me with the trip for my birthday, and I cannot wait. It's going to be on the Disney Wish. Yep. Do you have any advice for first-time Disney Cruise Line guests? And we're out of time for today, but part two with Ron will be out next week where we talk about his time as park-wide manager, stage manager for both the Spirit of Aloha Dinner Show and the Hoopty Doo Review, and more. As always, please subscribe to the show, rate it, and leave a review if you liked it, and tell your enemies if you didn't like it. Follow me on the socials by searching The Mouse and Me and visit patreon.com slash themouseandme to support the show. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you have the best day ever, and see you real soon.